lily. Is there, is there a desert lily? Does that thing exist? Sago lily. Are you kidding me? It's our is it state a desert flower. Lily? Is it called a desert lily? Oh, it's a lily and it grows in the desert. Well, okay. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Todd Mack, here with Joseph Dorowski, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about, you guessed it, Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. This novella was first published in December of 1843. And now I will turn the time over to Joseph for an unseemly amount of trivia. Just know, this isn't all the trivia I found (laughs) about A Christmas Carol. Could have done a whole podcast of just Christmas Carol trivia. Um, Let's start with something from listener Linnell, uh, who informed me that she'd seen an old copy of this that had the title A Christmas Carol in Prose, just adding a couple words to the title, (laughs) and I had never seen that before. And in keeping with the musical theme, the chapters were called Staves, though depending on what version you get your hands on today, they, they may say chapters or it may say Staves. My version called them Staves. Okay. I like it. Like so many timeless classics, there was about a six-week window between when Dickens started writing this and it was actually published. <laughs> <laughs> just just like all the great works that authors slave over. Yes. Uh, Dickens never actually made much money off of this book, though it was a massive seller. Um, you think piracy is a problem in the internet age, but back in the day, some unscrupulous publishers started to print their own copies of A Christmas Carol, and Dickens took them to court, and he won, but those publishers all just declared bankruptcy, and Dickens was left oh, with man. all of his legal legal bills, which were pretty big. <laughs> and so bummer. Uh, that compounded with the fact that so many of them have been sold uh, by piracy, he never actually made a whole lot of money. Something tells me that Dickens got the last laugh on that one on the other side, you know? (laughs) He's seen that this one has carried a little cultural weight with it. Yeah, I think that uh, somehow I feel like Dickens uh, got his comeuppance in the afterlife with all of those publishers. (laughs) Um, Todd, have you ever seen an adaptation of A Christmas Carol? I may have come across one or two. Okay, well, there's a little trivia about adaptations. The first one was performed in February 18th. 1844, and if you recall what Todd said at the very beginning, <laughs> it was first published in December of 1843, so basically two months later, uh, this is being performed on the stage, and uh, there's still, uh, as we've kind of hinted at, a lot of adaptations of this happening, but in his lifetime, Dickens enjoyed staging public readings of A Christmas Carol, and he performed it personally a recorded 127 times. I wish that life. they had recorded it 127 times. So you could actually hear Dickens himself. Yes. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yes. I would, I would listen. So I, I just thinking about that, um, December to February, uh, that's exactly how long it took my wife and I to plan our wedding. I proposed to her on Christmas day and we were married February 7th. So, so if we can plan a wedding, somebody else could stage an adaptation of a Christmas carol. It's almost how long it took him to write it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which was it published as a whole? Yes, this is not one of the serialized. This was published as a fully finished novella. And and when in December was it? Like December 19th. So Dickens rocking the NaNoWriMo of his day. <laughs> yeah, in November, <laughs> yes. Getting a whole novel out in a month. Uh, yeah, a lot of Dickens' works that we have today were serialized and uh, published across months and years. This one was all in one shot. Wow. 
Um, going back to adaptations, I'm just going to say this is this cannot be a comprehensive list at all. But I looked at the Wikipedia list of adaptations, and they identified 49 different stage adaptations, which I'm assuming was like scripts that have been produced for for the stage. 20 film adaptations that feels really low to me. <laughs> uh, 26 television adaptations also a bit on the light side. 17 radio adaptations, including one by Alec Guinness that I now want to go and listen to that he did for the BBC. Would you like to? Remind- our listeners who Alec Guinness is. And that is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Can oh, you cool. imagine? Well, he he plays Marley in in, uh, in, in the George C. Scott. Oh, in no, the George C. Scott? Not, it's, not, it's not in the no. George C. Scott. It's a really random one. I, it's not the musical one. That, okay. And it, it has a lot this, of adaptations. Yeah. Alec Guinness was in one of them. And really? He, he's a very good Marley. And it's old Alec Guinness. It's it's right. towards the end of his days. But producer Andrew, why don't you go check the recess of your mind on that? And I'll keep running through some more information about these adaptations. It's a, it's a weird version. Like there's this weird okay. aside in in Hell. That's the musical one, isn't it? Is it Scrooge? It's a musical number. Well, no, not that musical number. There's a musical number in Hell in one of the adaptations. Anyway, uh, eight. <laughs> it also lists eight audiobook recordings. Which again, no. There's there's definitely been more. <laughs> no, I came. Ac- I stumbled across way more than eight. And well, just also today. now just in the age of podcasts, when you can go yeah. if you go search for a Christmas Carol podcast, there are dozens there. Um, four operas. I'm okay with just saying four operas. I don't know. <laughs> been more than four. <laughs> There can't, there can't, there can't be more than four no, operas. It mentions no Broadway musicals. Surely there's been a Broadway musical of this really? at some point. It didn't mention any. I'm not saying there weren't. And it also mentions only five graphic novel adaptations. I'm going to guess higher numbers for every single one of those, except for the okay. opera. It <laughs> also, the opera. <laughs> I love the opera gets short shrift. Like, <laughs> nope, there are only four. <laughs> also listed 60 examples. So these were separate. 60 examples of adaptations that they say borrowed the basic plot of a Christmas Carol and laid them onto other characters for like special episodes of TV shows, including episodes of The Jetsons, The Six Million Dollar Man, and Thomas and Friends <laughs> have all borrowed the basic plot. And uh, again, just all those numbers just feel really low to me. Only 60? Yeah. That that of all of those numbers, that may be the <laughs> the least believable of all. I think every like I, I'm thinking of all the children's cartoons that I watched growing up around Christmas. There was a Christmas Carol version of yeah. Animaniacs and things. Yeah. All right, our producer address checked the recesses of his mind, and they have not failed me. It is simply called Scrooge 1970 fantasy drama. Wow. Uh, starring Albert Finney as oh, Scrooge. Yeah. Uh huh. That's yeah, and it is a musical. And Alec Guinness as um, Albert Finney is the dad in Big Fish is what I know him best from. Actually. Oh, oh yes, okay, okay, I like him. Yeah, and and Alec Guinness uh, plays a really good Marley, but it's kind of an odd adaptation. There's this, yeah, like I said, this weird aside in in Hell where Marley comes back to him and says, "Yes, now that you've been condemned, let me show you where you'll be working." And here's wow. your chain, and they've arranged a special room for you. Interesting. And it's a frozen room. He said, "You'll be the only man in hell with a chill," <laughs> because wow. they they assigned Scrooge this special workspace okay. that's completely frozen. It was one of the most bizarre segments of a Christmas Carol. All right, believe it or not, listeners, I still got a few more bits of trivia. This is one of my favorite things I discovered. There's this little cottage industry of people writing sequels or continuing adventures of characters from A Christmas Carol, including, uh, I just chose three to mention, The Spirit of the Season, published in 1998 by Don Flowers. In this one, uh, Scrooge teams up with a grown Tiny Tim to try and free Marley's ghost 20 years after the events of A Christmas Carol. In The Last Christmas of Ebenezer Scrooge, with the subtitle, 
the sequel to A Christmas Carol, in case anyone was wondering. <laughs> uh, Marvin Kay writes, um, this, it says this sequel picks up right where the original left off with Scrooge trying to right unresolved wrongs. Uh, and then my favorite, Mr. Timothy by Louis Bayard. Uh, this was published, I think it was 2011. Oh my God. Oh boy. Tiny Tim is a 23-year-old resident of a London brothel who becomes embroiled in a murder mystery. Oh my goodness. I don't know what that means. Does that, <laughs> resident of a brothel. Does that have anything to do with the Christmas Carol except that it's Tiny Tim? Uh, from that one sentence that I found on Wikipedia describing it, I don't think so, no. <laughs> Unless the murder, lo- it's the murder of Scrooge, maybe? I don't know. I love that the last Christmas the last Christmas of Ebenezer Scrooge is is called the sequel to a Christmas Carol. <laughs> Not a sequel to a Christmas Carol, but the one and only sequel. Well, to a Christmas Carol. I, so there were some others, like going back, uh, like Louisa May Alcott wrote a story that dealt with quite a bit of this, and it was mentioned in what I saw online as though it was like a sequel, but when I went and read it, it's really, there's a child that reads A Christmas Carol and then has a dream that's similar to A Christmas Carol. So it's not the same as just these outright sequels. Interesting. And then the last bit of trivia. Historians and cultural critics, including Ronald Hutton, have argued that many of our current Christmas traditions, including feasting, family gatherings, and charitable giving, are linked to a mid-Victorian era revival of recognizing and celebrating the holiday that was largely a result of the popularity of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. To which I say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Charles Dickens. Yes. uh, So... When I've, I've heard discussions of like, what's your favorite season of the year? Like fall is the go-to answer for me. But then there's the, like the, the secret fifth season of the holiday season that I think, yes. you, know, you know, that, that, that ride from Thanksgiving through Christmas. It uh, is for me. Absolutely. Yes. That, that secret fifth season is my favorite season of the year. And so much of it is these elements that we seem to have borrowed from some of a Christmas Carol. I have two additions to oh, the trivia. trivia. Well, <laughs> not entirely, but <laughs> Not entirely trivia. I think one of the finest uh, televised show cartoon adaptations versions is the Ghostbusters uh, Christmas Carol. That one was uh, was one of the first mentioned <laughs> in that list, actually. <laughs> and um, I thought that you were saying that the Ghostbusters is somehow a like no, you're no. reading Ghostbusters as a Christmas Carol, and I was like. <laughs> Huh. Well, there's ghosts. I don't know that. Well, there are ghosts, yes. But no, no, there's there's an episode of the cartoon where they get called by an old man who's being haunted and they capture the ghosts of Christmas. Uh huh. (laughs) And they have to go. They stop him from being being haunted. And then they have to go back into their. They have to dive into their. I don't know. The ghost catcher thing and Uh pull them out. So that they can help him change his life? Yeah. Something Ah, like that. Ah, okay. I got it. Um. And then also, Joseph, you shared with our family recently, there's a Dickensian BBC. Oh, yeah. So so starting next, so we're recording this, uh, if any listeners are coming back, this is in December of 2015, uh, that we're recording this. It's starting in January on BBC and BBC America. They are airing a 20-part series called Dickensian, in which the most popular characters from all of Dickens' novels are living in the same village. What? And some sort of interactions occur. I don't know what the plot is. I Beyond that, I just know like wow. Scrooge could go run into Miss Havisham. Is how. Wow. Yeah. 20-part series from BBC. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, I was going to mention um, the Doctor Who episode with Charles Dickens with the ghosts. Yes. Is pretty great. That is a good one. But very, very creepy. Uh, maybe at the end we could just run through our favorite adaptations. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Uh, so before we get there, though, Todd, uh, how, did, how did you come to a Christmas Carol? <laughs> um, I, uh, as you can probably imagine, don't remember the first time that I came across <laughs> Christmas Carol. It's, uh, it's pretty uh, embedded in Christmas for me. Uh, but recently, I think when I was... When I was in grad school, I decided I'm going to read a Christmas Carol every single year at Christmas time. And uh, I may have missed some years, but most years I read a Christmas Carol at Christmas time, and I really like it. It's just a great story, and it's a really quick read, actually. Yeah, um, it's always longer than I think. I'm like, oh, it's a quick read, and so, <laughs> so sometimes I have to end up finishing a Christmas Carol after Christmas because that's uh, some of that may be uh because i don't pace myself very well but, <laughs> but if you start at thanksgiving time you've got plenty of time you know reading to the kids at night or something you can you can read through a christmas carol some of that is because um dickens has a fondness for synonyms <laughs> and <laughs> runs of adjectives <laughs> that are uh saying essentially the same thing i think that comes from his days when he was serializing his writing and he was paid by the word <laughs> i love i love dickens <laughs> love that uh, style, style. yeah it's, but it's interesting because I, I, it's one of those where if you can break the rules well, break the rules because he breaks a lot of the rules of creative writing. <laughs> his voice, his voice is so uh, clear, and the narrative voice in this story is one of the most delightful things. And it's, it's like from the first paragraph, I go, oh yeah, okay, this is Dickens at his best. This is yep. really, really great. Uh, similarly, I have no idea when I first became aware of a Christmas Carol. It, like it's like we said, it's so much a part of even children's cartoons, doing versions of it, and then my parents maybe having some film adaptations of it on. I, I don't think I actually read the real version until it was assigned in junior high school, I want to say, for an English uh-huh. class. Uh, but yeah, it's just always some version of it will be encountered every Christmas season, it seems. Wow. Well, uh, before we move on... Uh... I would like to give a spoiler-free synopsis of A Christmas Carol for any, for any listeners who <laughs> might not know what this story is about. Uh, this is the story of a man called Ebenezer Scrooge, and he is an old miser, and nobody likes him, and he doesn't really like anybody. And then he is visited by some ghosts at Christmas time. And if that sounds interesting to you, <laughs> then uh, there are... Uh, myriad <laughs> ways for you to to consume this. Um, I would so, just uh, I'd point out that there are surely free versions, uh, Kindle versions. There are free uh, versions online, like even not Kindle. You can just go find it in many places. And this is not a case of the piracy that plagued Dickens in his day. This is old enough that it is yes. in uh, you know fair fair access for all. So uh, I, I think the Gutenberg uh, project has it, and a yep. lot of universities have text versions that you find on their websites. As and well. you can also find a good audio adaptation. Um, and and none of these are are uh, uh, abridged because it's so short. Yeah, you're going to get the whole thing. Um, so I listened to you it can, today on LibriVox, and which it was you can great. download those for free as podcasts. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for an audiobook, uh, 
Jim Dale read this, and he is the person who read the audiobooks of Harry Potter for American audiences, so he may have a key part of your adolescence if you're of a certain age. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he does a, a fantastic job reading A Christmas Carol. If so if you have an Audible credit or want to go uh, you know, pay for the Audible book, uh, that is one I would recommend. Uh, we will have links to uh, where you can get this for free in our show notes. And now, before we move on, uh, we'd like to take a moment to let you know that this and all of our episodes are brought to you by the donations of you, our great listeners. That's right. If you're listening to this and you donate even $1 a month, we want to tell you thank you. And if you're listening to this and you have yet to make a donation, now's your chance. Uh, As you go through this season spreading Christmas cheer, we encourage you to spread a little of it our way in the form of a monthly pledge. Just $1 a month would help us grow our audience and keep the lights on. There are three easy ways to donate. You can go to protagonistpodcast.com and click on the support button. Or you can go straight to patreon.com slash protagonist. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Patreon.com slash protagonist. Or even easier, you can just click right on the Patreon link. Uh, in our show notes, uh, inside of your podcast app, and you can make a donation. So please uh, consider sending us some Christmas love. One dollar a month or twelve dollars a year really is a bargain for what you're getting. And uh, thanks again to all of our listeners for supporting us. And we're so lucky to have you. And now back to Joe and the full synopsis. Well, I was just going to say real quick, if uh, perhaps you've been saying humbug, they don't need any donation. Maybe listening <laughs> to this particular episode will inspire you to give a dollar a month. Uh, which, again, this is uh, something that Todd and I really, really do enjoy doing, but there are some costs involved, so any any small donations do help with those costs. All right, here's the full synopsis. Scrooge is a miser that nobody likes. He hoards his wealth, but has few earthly possessions and no friends. Scrooge refuses to help anyone asking for charitable donations for the poor. He rudely refuses his nephew's invitation to a Christmas party, and he's just basically a horrible boss to his only employee, Bob Cratchit. <laughs> The ghost of his old business partner, Jacob Marley, visits him uh, on Christmas Eve night and warns him that his unkind ways will leave him shackled with chains and wandering the world for all eternity. To help him change his life, three spirits will visit him that night. The ghost of Christmas past, a strange amorphous creature of overwhelming light, takes Scrooge to see moments from his own past, including a lonely Christmas at a boarding school, a tender moment with his sister, happy times when he was employed by Mr. Fezziwig, and when he was in love with his fiancée named Belle, and a Christmas when Belle ended their engagement and left him because he had become obsessed with his job and accumulating wealth. The ghost of Christmas present, a giant bearded man, takes Scrooge to see celebrations of Christmas that will be taking place the next day, so he's sort of the ghost of Christmas near future. They see people <laughs> shopping, a gathering at a humble miner's cottage, a celebration at a lighthouse, at Scrooge's nephew's house, there are games being played, and of course they visit Bob Cratchit's house where Tiny Tim is introduced. Finally, the ghost shows Scrooge two hungry, starving children who represent ignorance and want. Uh, the ghost of Christmas yet to come appears and is a hooded figure who shows Scrooge various individuals who are gloating over and attempting to profit from the death of an unnamed man. Scrooge also sees the Cratchit's house where they mourn the loss of Tiny Tim. Scrooge discovers that the unnamed man for whom nobody mourned was dun 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 himself. Uh, he pleads for the chance to change and then awakens back in his own bed. On Christmas Day, Scrooge sends a prized turkey to the Cratchit's house, promises a significant charitable donation to help the poor, and then spends the day joyfully with his nephew at his Christmas party. The next day, he pretends to be angry with Cratchit when his employee shows up a few minutes late, but he can't keep up the facade. He promises to give Cratchit a raise and help his family. The novella ends with Tiny Tim's catchphrase, God bless us, everyone. All right. 
Anything you didn't see coming in that summary, Todd? <laughs> um, I'm always surprised at the appearance of ignorance and want. They don't. They don't often show up in film in the film version. Yeah, they're usually left out. Which seems which seems kind of sad that um, you know if you're going to leave somebody out, <laughs> why does it have to be ignorance and want? Well, it's also such um, a key thematic element to to what Dickens is trying to tell us. Like, uh-huh. like this, I think that is one of the hooks he wants us to be, you know, hanging our thoughts on the story on is this, uh, monologue that the ghost of Christmas present gives about ignorance and want, and, it, and particularly the warning of ignorance being the more insidious and dangerous of the two for, yeah. for mankind. Interesting. But like you said, that often gets left out because it isn't. So, so it's an odd moment where uh, the ghost of Christmas present, who at the beginning of this journey is young and vibrant, he's aging throughout that vision of the day, mm-hmm. and at the very end, he's kind of become an old man with gray beard and and um, and Scrooge like sees something sticking out from under his robes, and he says, "What's that?" And he pulls back his robes, and there's two hovering, <laughs> or not hovering, but hovering. Sh- uh, sh- uh, shivering, that's the word I was looking for. Two <laughs> shivering, cold, uh, you know, emaciated children, a boy and a girl. And, and, he's, and Scrooge is like, uh, what's this? <laughs> and then the ghost says, this is ignorance and want. How, could, how did you not know this was ignorance and want? So I, I understand why it gets cut, because it is kind of odd. Uh, yeah. It's not. It's not this most you know smoothly inserted part of the narrative as far as like the storytelling goes. But yes. I think the discussion about ignorance and want is something that Dickens really valued. Yeah, I think you're right. So let's talk about Scrooge. All right. So in our Christmas discussion so far, we've we've talked about Big Bird and Buddy the Elf, and we mentioned that they're both kind of naively innocent and don't have any character arc and <laughs> are largely unchanged. And we said, and maybe that's just something about Christmas stories. And now we're coming to Ebenezer Scrooge. Now we've come to the Christmas story. <laughs> yes. Well, not, okay, not a Christmas story. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, well, uh, okay, let me, let me rephrase that. There is one Christmas story that is perhaps more important than this. <laughs> well, no, I was talking about the movie, A Christmas Story. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about uh, the Bible. <laughs> right. Which shows up way more in this than um, I, you, you typically see in the adaptations. Like, there's the discussion of Scrooge's mantle that has carvings of Bible stories. Mm-hmm. And the ghosts tend to mention Christianity a bit more than we see yes. in many of the adaptations. Um, but, as you, I think what you're trying to say is, like, this is the most iconic Christmas story, I think. Post-Bible. Yeah, <laughs> Post-Bible. And... Uh, <laughs> And it's not about a naively, sweetly innocent figure. It's about a horrible human being. One, you know, a, a name that's become synonymous with being, you know, treating your fellow man poorly. Yes. Uh, to be a Scrooge. And this kind of wonderful change uh, in his life. So um, tonight, the kids at, at the school, they had a, um, it was movie night, Christmas movie night. And we watched Polar Express. And it reminded me of, I think you mentioned this in in previous, I can't remember if we mentioned it in Big Bird or Elf or and Elf, but it seems like there is an obsession in Christmas movies and Christmas stories uh, with people who don't believe and this lack of belief. And that's like the big problem. And if we could just get people to believe, then everything would be great. And it's often a bit vague about what the belief should be. Like we mentioned with Elf, it's Christmas spirit, but they never define what, what form that should take. <laughs> yeah, well, I think in actually, Elf they're saying that everybody should believe in Santa Claus. 
in Polar Express, yeah, I mean, Santa Claus becomes this sort of stand-in for believing in the unseen, um, believing in you know some higher power or or special spirit or like goodness and peace on earth and believing in and that, uh, which is fine. But I wonder, um, how do you see Scrooge fitting into or not that model? Or setting up or not that model? So like I said, in the novella, there's a lot more overt references to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that we see references to, Chris, uh, to, to Bible stories and to you know Christ's birth, uh, as mentioned. But there's um, kind of the, the negative, scary side <laughs> of... Um, you, you're going to hell right now, <laughs> Scrooge, right. and there's kind of some internal eternal torment that is going is going to be on your head because of the choices you're making now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's a little different than just be nice to everyone because it makes the world happier. It's there are serious long term individual ramifications for the choices you're making here on Earth. Yeah. So do you see this as as the prototype for these other stories that come later? I mean, uh, when, we, when we see when we see the little boy in Polar Express who doesn't believe in Christmas and he and it, the bell doesn't ring anymore, is that the same as? I mean, is, as are those echoes of Ebenezer Scrooge? I'd say there. I mean, definitely a lot of our Christmas stories have echoes. I think It's a Wonderful Life has some echoes of this. Mm-hmm. I think the Grinch clearly has echoes <laughs> of of this version uh but often i mean i guess it's a wonderful life has you know does angels but it doesn't deal with kind of christ and hell the way that right. uh this one does so i think you know those echoes kind of become i don't want to say diluted but they they start to maybe turn these into less religious stories and more kind of seasonal stories uh-huh okay do I you agree with that, with that? Yeah, well, I I just, I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm thinking of Scrooge and I'm wondering, is Scrooge's fundamental problem uh, a question of belief or is it something else? And if it is something else, what is the something else? So does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, so the problem is his actions, right? I mean, that's the, the main thing we're seeing. Right. And I don't know if his actions can be linked to a lack of belief in an afterlife or I I mean, we see these, this montage essentially of, of his earlier life and how he came to be. And in those, I don't think there's any real religious aspect to his life. Right. No, it seems to me that what's at the heart of, of Scrooge's issue is not uh, a belief or a lack of belief, but um, misplaced values. Perhaps. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we see this big turn when he's a young man and he's with, um, he, he's with Fezziwig and then he's with his, uh, with Belle and, and then that heartbreaking scene where she breaks up with him because he has placed his heart, uh, in like squarely in the camp of, I want money and that's more and important the, than people. That's it. And it's more important than people. And so, and not just the abstract concept of people, but it's more important than you, my fiance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, we get these these really the the beginning of this novel uh, just stands out to me so much. These um, when the when the people well when Fred comes by and Scrooge is horrible to him, and then when the people come by asking for charity. 
And he says, well, are the, are the prisons still working? And they say, well, yes. And he says, oh, thank goodness. I thought maybe there was something wrong. <laughs> and then they say, well, people could die. And he says, well, let's uh, get rid of the excess population or something. Like he, I mean, he just is so cold uh, in, in his heart. And I wonder – like, like you think about uh, faith, hope, and charity. Like does he lack faith? Does he lack hope? And it is, or does he only lack charity? Like if, if you, if you see those as a, um, like as a continuum, I like, I don't know. I, I think sometimes we focus so much on the faith, like the, the belief of that and belief just seems to be such a big part of Christmas stories in general. And I don't know that that's exactly, uh, Scrooge's problem. Yeah. Because like I said, it's, it's not like a change in his you know belief in Christianity, even though that's kind of a thread that's there throughout Dickens' story and most of his other Christmas stories that Dickens wrote. It's really about his actions towards other human beings. <laughs> like that's the problem. That's what needs to change, and that's what they're uh, you know evoking by taking him on this this journey. But you could, I mean, you could like walk those steps backwards, and you say he has a lack of charity. He also has no hope. I mean, what does he hope for? What does what what makes what is his motivation? Well, I was going to ask you that because beyond having more money, but for what? <laughs> I know that's the that's he, the kicker. He doesn't spend it on anything, not himself, mm-hmm. not uh, others, certainly. But it's not like he's living in opulence. No, not at all. And when he dies at the end, uh, and they're selling off his things, it's all it's all worthless. So yeah, he has nothing of value. Yeah, so it's not like he's he's spending on a mansion or anything like that, or or mm-hmm. on good meals. Like he's eating, you know, a poor soup. <laughs> yeah. Uh, every night, you know, that's his routine. Go get the cheapest soup at, you know, on his way home. And go eat it. So what? So what? What is his deal? It's uh, I don't I don't know. And again, we get this like path through his life, uh-huh. and it's not all unhappiness in his childhood, right? So he has. Uh, it starts with unhappiness when he's kind of alone at a boarding school, mm-hmm. but then you get his sister who clearly there's a, re- a loving relationship between him and his sister and his sister wants him in her life and he would much rather be in her life than at mm-hmm. this boarding school. And she says, I've talked dad into bringing you home. So there was something wrong in the relationship with his dad. that The sister's been trying to fix, but okay. that's one of the happy scenes. Then we, uh, we see, I always want to say Fozzie wig because of, I'm of a Christmas, Carol, Fozzie but, it's, wig. But, it, but, it, but it's Fezziwig. He's the one that I always picture when I, when I, <laughs> Uh, which is a great place to work and it seems mm-hmm. like they are making money and it's happy and he's feeling joy but then it something happens between that and later on when we get the breakup scene with Belle um, where it, he's not feeling joy in his work anymore and it's solely about accumulating and creating these savings so I don't know that we get what caused that shift within this do you narrative. Think that, do you think that it has something to do with security? I think so. So I had... Because um, there's a difference between wanting money in order to be secure, like to protect yourself against the, po- the possibility of bad things happening to you. Yeah. And accumulating wealth so that you can spend it and have an opulent lifestyle. But I think both can be damaging. Like the... Uh, I heard a story from my um my aunt who was talking about someone she knew who his whole life like he'd been drilled into like you need to build your savings you need to build your savings for a rainy day and 
Um, he would never touch his savings for anything. And then his wife became really sick, but he still like, wasn't touching those savings uh-huh. for paying for this because you don't touch your savings. That's for when things are really bad. It's like, this is the really <laughs> bad moment, but it, it has come. It had become something else. Uh-huh. Like the need to have those savings to become something else than, you know, really being able to use it. It was, that just has to be there for the, you know, the worldview that it developed. And that seems to be what has happened to Scrooge. It's, um, it's a really, yeah, I think that, I think that we're onto something here with this idea that it's not, a, it's not the accumulation of wealth so that he can have nice things. It's the accumulation of wealth so that he can have security. And this must have been something that happened in between those scenes in his early life that made him feel like his best shot at security was financial and not in in humans, in other people. In relationships. In relationships, yeah. What happened to his sister? Well, we meet his nephew. Uh, his sister's not there anymore. I think there's a reference to her dying, but th- his nephew's still in his life. Yeah, we get. I think we get the impression that she's that she's dead because when he sees his sister, he has this like twinge of sadness when he re- remembers how he has treated Fred and how much he loved his sister and recognizing that the, the nephew is his sister's son. And, and he's like, Whoa. <laughs> you know, that was a, that was not, that was not right. So Fred at, at the Im- implication that we get in the story, and again, it's not really explicitly clear, but Fred's the only family that's left. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I've got some theories. Go for it. Floating around. I like your theory. Um, your headcanon. Yeah. I love so, your headcanon. So if at some point while he was still courting Belle, he lost his sister, mm-hmm. who's you know the most important person to him because he didn't have a good relationship with his father and his mother's not even mentioned. So if he lost his sister, and if that was somehow a result of not having financial security... Not having money to pay for a doctor... He could have become obsessive about that, fairly reasonably. Yeah. Yeah. And and that could have driven something in him. But, I mean, this is all... It's not even subtext. We're fixing Dickens, is what we're doing right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's not even subtext. But then somehow, her son Fred still had enough financial stability to have kind of a fortune to himself... In yeah, all the versions I've seen, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he, he has a well comfortable enough house and he throws a good Christmas party, but yeah, it I don't just, know. It, it's hard to say what his status is. Yeah. But you know, so maybe she died because of not being able to afford security. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't see this so much as us trying to fix Dickens as it is, uh, recognizing this, uh, this hole in our knowledge of one of like the iconic characters of all time, which maybe and trying to understand something. what's, what's going on. You there. know, Todd, we could probably write another story that provides this backstory. You know what? I bet but, it's but, never been done, but don't make it a sequel. Make it a, an inquil uh, or, or a prequel, a prequel. It will be, it will be called Scrooge's first Christmas. The <laughs> I was gonna the say the prequel. I was gonna call it Becoming Scrooge. Ooh, I like that. Becoming Scrooge, the prequel to A Christmas Carol. Not a prequel, but the prequel. The one and only. Um and then my other my other theory was having to do with um what you said, like when he dies, you know, accumulated wealth and, and, and everything. So does that all go to Fred? 
I can't imagine they don't, they don't, people are speculating. So the, the, the Christmas yet to come, it seems like he died on Christmas day and it's just some of his business partner partners and some of his clients. And then the people who stole some of his goods from his house, they're just kind of speculating about mm-hmm. how much wealth he had and where it's going to go. But it's not ever stated. Yeah, okay. I can't and, imagine that he's willed it to Fred at that point. And they don't indicate that, that Fred had any interaction with him towards the end of his life. So maybe it actually alienated his last relative. Cause Fred would have been upset. Yeah. Fred, he's when, probably when the they only do person that, that, uh, Christmas yet to come and like, no one cares about Scrooge. I did think, I think for the first time ever, like where's Fred? Cause he, <laughs> he would have cared, <laughs> you know, he would have done something. Yeah. yeah. Probably better than Scrooge deserved. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, so I, I, with this text, so much of it becomes driven by like how familiar we are with all the adaptations. So was there anything reading at this time, Todd, that kind of still surprised you, which I've read it a few times and, but I've seen so many adaptations and there are lines that are always quoted where like, I know how this line's going to end because it always gets said in every adaptation. But there are also moments where it's like, I don't think I've ever seen that adapted. In any of the versions, was there anything that kind of popped out to you that way? Um, not necessarily in the in the like I have never seen that adapted, except for the uh, ignorance and want. the The thing that's the the one quote that stood out to me there there are certain quotes that I always just love when he says, "Mankind was my business." That's like that for me. The that's like among the most important quotes. <laughs> I think it just it matters to me a lot. Um, and at the very beginning when he says, Jacob Marley was dead, dead as a doornail. Uh, although, and then he goes on this like, uh, l- kind of long tangent about why do we say dead as a doornail? We should say dead as something else. Cause there's nothing particularly dead about doornails. We should maybe say coffin nails or something. And, <laughs> and I just think, I love you Dickens. Like, this is amazing. This is so great. See, I always enjoy that because like that, that latter part never gets adapted, but the first line. Yes. Always is adapted. I think most kids at some point say, what does that even mean? Dead as a doornail. And yeah. we think we're being clever for saying it, but Dickens was already saying it. Yes. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the very first text. The line that, the line that stood out to me this time, let's see if I can find it here. Um, it is good to be children sometimes. So this is when they're playing games. Uh, Fred and his, um, and his friends are playing With the games. Ghost of Christmas present. Uh, ghost of Christmas present. And the, I can't remember if it's the ghost of Christmas present who says it is good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when it's mighty founder was a child himself. And I thought, I like that. (laughs) It's a sweet, it's a um, sweet. And the, there are just so many, um, I, I think there, there are elements in this story that are funny, like really funny. And, and there are elements of this that are like chilling, like really legitimately scary and you know when marley uh unbandages his face and his jaw falls off um like that's disturbing and then there are moments like this that are just super uh tender and it's amazing to me that uh dickens is able to take us on this on this ride through all of these emotions in such a short work but this was really tender i thought when you mentioned that there are moments that are funny, I, I, there's one that always delights me when I come across it reading because you don't typically see it in the adaptations. Mm-hmm. And it's also at that party where there's the one person who is flirting with the one that's called <laughs> that's the, the plump so sister. Great. And the, it talks about them playing blind man's buff and he keeps, when he's the blind man, he would accidentally bump into her all the time. <laughs> he was clearly cheating and just trying to get close to her. But it's, it's just such this um, 
kind of nice human element to the side. Yeah, um, I love kind of it. like with Elf, we talked about how we yeah, we felt like that sh- uh, movie did a good job of developing these other characters so that there were some worlds outside of this main character's arc. Uh, and I think that scene at the party does a really good job of establishing some identity for characters <laughs> that don't appear anywhere else. And Dickens didn't really need to do that, but it adds yeah. a nice layer to the story. Yeah, I, I really, I, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. One other uh, element that surprises me every time I actually read the text is that after Marley, Marley leaves, or right before he leaves, Scrooge looks out the window and he sees all these other shackled ghosts that want to help humanity but can't because they never did it during their lives. I've forgotten about that as well. Um, which seems like today that could be done really well <laughs> in an adaptation. Yeah. Um, to have these streets of ghosts that are carrying their shackles and trying to interact with humanity but unable to. Okay, so speaking of, of ghosts, that's the perfect segue into something that I did, uh, I want to talk about tonight. And that is. Uh, ghost stories at Christmas time. Okay. I wanted to ask you actually, is this the most <laughs> famous ghost story ever? Ooh. Um, I, I've been trying to think of anything that would top it as far as like pervasiveness in our popular culture. Well, we, you know, you have ghostbusters, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think so outside of, um, what would we say? I mean, I, I, like I'm thinking about religious texts, mm-hmm. like in the Bible, you know, there are like visitations from angels, but sometimes they're, you know, angels, people have been on earth that are dead now. <laughs> so would you count that as a ghost? Well, spirits, um, I guess, <laughs> which yeah. they're called spirits in this. Yeah. I mean, I think that outside of, outside of Holy writ, I think that that's probably a safe bet to call this the most famous ghost story of all time. All right. Then follow-up question. Is this the most famous time travel story of all time? <laughs> oh, I, I Cause think... we don't think about it that way, but it's time travel. And then it's yeah, also, it by the way, alternate dimension due to messing with the timeline time travel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like he visits an alternate future and his actions in the present change that course. Yeah. Which, this is way ahead of when we think of that kind of sci-fi story genre developing. Yeah. So, there's an article in the Deseret News. Christmas. Checking the recesses of my mind The Deseret News is the probably largest local newspaper in Utah for listeners outside of (laughs) Utah. Um, And we'll have a link to this. One of the two largest, definitely. We'll have a link to this in show notes. Uh, it's called telling ghost stories is a lost tradition on Christmas Eve. So are you aware of this tradition? I've heard references to it probably almost always in connection with explaining some aspects of a Christmas carol. So there, there's the song, right? It's the most wonderful time of the year. And they say scary ghost stories and tales of, and I'm like, what scary ghost stories at Christmas time? Uh, Uh, turns out that while, uh, while, um, it says, while reading a list of all modern Christmas traditions that were either borrowed from pagan winter festivals or invented by the English during the mid-19th century, it's remarkable to see how little Christmas has changed over the past 160 years. Uh, by the way, that mid-19th century, that a lot of those were, again, coming from yes. the popularity of Dickens and A Christmas Carol. Yeah, so it's not like Dickens invented Christmas, but what I understand happened is there were Christmas traditions, and they were associated with... Uh, with these pagan holidays, and um, there was a pure a, a, a move 
a move by the Puritans to do away with Christmas because it felt frivolous and pagan. And so there was Christmas was in danger of being kind of stamped out in the in the mid nineteenth century, and then Dickens came along and wrote this story. And I think I wonder how much if we were if we were to go back then, or if research has been done on this, uh, how much of the commentary inside of Christmas Carol is a direct is a direct response to this puritanical. Kind of um, removal of some of the traditions that built up around the Right. But I, I mean, I wonder how, how many of Scrooge's uh, uh, traits uh, you, could, you could map onto something. If this, uh, onto if, some puritanical tra- – like we said, like he has money, but he doesn't – he's not spending it, which is a very puritanical trait <laughs> to right. not and have so, showy displays of wealth. Which gets, which gets me back to that earlier comment about um, – about faith, right? Nobody's yes. gonna nobody's gonna question a Puritan's belief in God. It's it's something else. It's it's it has to do with what they value uh, and what they and what they don't value. And I think that that's again what's at the kind of what at the heart of of what Scrooge's issue is. But it turns out that one of these uh, traditions is telling ghost ghost stories. That has and kind of so, been lost, right? From so yeah, it says um, uh, there's a they have a quote here from 1891. Whenever five or six English speaking people meet round a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. So, so I did a little, um, I did a little like a Jekyll and Hyde self uh, experimentation today. <laughs> Uh, in which I uh, listened to, so I was doing yard work. So I thought I'm going to listen to Christmas Carol on uh, on LibriVox. So I listened to it and finished it, and then I listened to. There's a podcast called Lore. Have you heard of this podcast? I have not. Lore. Uh, it's apparently a huge phenomenon right now, but it's it's uh, created by a guy who is a he writes um, like horror fiction or thrillers, kind of a Stephen King kind of guy. And he goes and he'll find like some aspect of some scary like folklore. So like the very first episode, episode one is about vampires and he, and he does research into vampires and like, uh, you know, vampires exist in essentially every culture on the planet has some version of vampires. And then he talks about this really chilling, uh, moment in the 19th century United States where they thought that people were vampires and they started um, digging up their bodies and doing all kinds of horrible things to them because they thought that they were that they were undead. <laughs> and uh, so he, so each episode is about something just totally creepy, and they're ghost stories. And um, so he talks about like today uh, he talked about the hotel in Colorado that the, the Shining is based on. Um, and haunted woods and uh, fairies and little people. And I just listened for like probably an hour and a half to these really amazing ghost stories. <laughs> and uh, I just think it's such an interesting part of Christmas that is, that's gone. And I'm like, I think we should bring it back maybe. I don't know. Well, I think the absolute popularity of this is probably the only remnant of that. <laughs> Yeah. Like, this is the Christmas ghost story. Um, 
I yeah, but when it. you think of a Christmas Carol, do you think of it as a scary ghost st- story? No. So, so at the very beginning of our trivia, um, I mentioned listener Linnell had was the one who said that she found an early version of the text that was caught that said a, a, a Christmas Carol in prose. Mm-hmm. Um, but along with that comment, one of the first things she says, "I forget that this is a ghost story." Yeah. Yeah. Like it's it's. It's a Christmas story. It's not a ghost story, and it's not a time travel story, and it's not an alternate dimension story. It's it's just a Christmas story. Is kind of how we think we categorize it as far as genre. right. Yeah, but 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 it but seems even, like the tradition you're identifying wasn't like you know we're telling Christmas stories that happen to have ghosts. It was we are telling the genre of spooky, scary story horror stories. Yeah. Well, how does Dickens open open it? He says, "I hope that this story." Does they call it a ghost story right then? I have endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea, which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Their faithful friend and servant, C.D., December 1843. So it's like, this is a ghost story, and, and that's the very first thing that he says. It's a ghostly little book. And he says, I want to raise the ghost of an idea, but I don't want to put people out of humor and I wanted to haunt their houses pleasantly. And I, so I remember watching, I can't remember what version it is. It may be the, um, the is it uh, Scott? George C. Scott? The George C. Scott version. Mm-hmm. Um, when he, he gets, so it's foggy, 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 and he gets to his house and the knocker changes uh, its form. Yeah. And I do remember being terrified at that when I was a kid. Right. I remember that. So the the scariest moments are Marley's ghost, the ghost's Christmas yet to come, um, as far as adaptations go. But when I was actually reading the text, I want to read the description of the ghost of Christmas past. Because <laughs> um, this is, you, you can't adapt this, and most films don't even try. Like, they, uh-huh. the, the go-to is probably a little girl. It's the ghost of Christmas past, right? Is that the most common? Yeah, sure. Kind of- uh-huh. Um, but this is the way it's described in the text. It was a strange figure like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back was white as if with age, yet the face had not a wrinkle in it. And the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular. The hands the same as if its hold were of uncommon strength, its feet or its legs and feet most delicately formed. Uh, were, like those upper members, bare. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and in singular contradiction of that wintry emblem had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright clear jet of light by which all was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using in its duller moments a great extinguisher for a cap, which now it (laughs) held under its arm. But then it gets even weirder. (laughs) Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it, uh, uh, looked at it with increasing steadiness was not its strangest quality for as its belt sparkled and glittered now in one part and now in another and what was light one instant and another time was dark so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness being now a thing with one arm now with one leg now with 20 legs now a pair of legs without a head now a head without a body of which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away and in the very wonder of this it would itself again it would be itself again, distinct and clear as ever. Like that is Lovecraftian Cthulhu. That's exactly. I was just exact. I was just going to say Lovecraft. Right. And we do not associate this with Lovecraft. No, <laughs> in, in any way, but that description is there. And in the text, it's like, you can't 
conceptualize that, which is why so many of the film and stage and animation adaptations just do, it's a young girl. <laughs> yeah. Because um, you, you, at least until the age of CGI, you couldn't even come close to approximating that, and it would probably be too weird for audiences to really try and create that being with you know the arms and legs disappearing and reappearing, but now there's 20 legs and now there's none. It'd be interesting to see like Guillermo del Toro have a stab at Christmas Carol. Yes, I would and see, love like, that. See what he would do with it. Or even Tim Burton. You know, you know, Guillermo del Toro always has 40 projects, it seems. One of them yes. should be his adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Yeah. <laughs> He's always announcing, like, this is going to be the next five things I'm working on, and then, like, <laughs> some other thing is what he actually makes next. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he was still working on Beauty and the Beast with Anne Hathaway. I thought it was Emma Watson. Oh. I think he's not working. But no, I think that one passed. And now Emma Watson did a version with Disney with another oh, director. Bummer. Yeah. I think he passed um, on Beauty and the Beast. No, I don't know. I, I don't really know what there is to say except that I think that this idea of ghost stories at Christmas time is really, really interesting. And I wonder – I wonder – so uh, here's why it's interesting to me. Because I wonder what it is that we've lost about Christmas when we lose that tradition. Do you think some of that tradition has been overtaken by, like, a rise in Halloween's prominence in our culture? So we kind of shifted all of that discussion to October, and then in November we do thankfulness, and then in December it's Christmas season. Uh, you know, as far as, like, the, the, the calendar of holidays, we, did we shift all of that over to Halloween? Because I think, I get the feeling, if we were to look into it, that Halloween's a bigger deal in the 20th century than it was in earlier centuries. Um, I'm not a folklorist. Uh, there is something like pagan and primal about Halloween, and and it has to do with that time of year, like with fall time. Yes, the harvest and, and the transition and mm-hmm. things dying. Yeah, and so I. Uh, but like I think I don't know. Like I, I like, seem to remember reading, and I could be wrong, but I, I seem to remember reading that Halloween, as we know it today, really came about during the Great Depression. Sure, uh, I. Yeah. As it's celebrated with, like, the scary costumes and the kids going around and everything. And so I'm wondering if that, the rise of that kind of sucked away the ghost stories from Christmas. I don't know. If, you, if any of you listeners out there know about about this, I would be really interested uh, to, <laughs> to hear more. But I just am, <laughs> so, like, so, I, I just uh, wonder... What, what What is it that we're missing? So there's clearly the contrast element, right? So, so much of our Christmas celebration is about, uh, the, you know, the, the elf Christmas spirit. It's about happiness and joy and charity mm-hmm. and uh, having ghost stories. Just maybe it's providing that stark contrast that you, you have to have the lows to know the highs kind of kind uh-huh. of process. And so by having the, you know, the scariness on Christmas Eve, it can make the celebrations of Christmas Day even more so. Because just before it, you had this contrast. Yeah. I, I think that that certainly has something to do with it. All right. Our producer, Andrew, has done a little research into this, I think. Yeah. The recesses of my mind are telling me that Halloween before the 1840s in America was not huge. But due to an influx of Irish immigrants during the famine in the 1840s, Halloween got some extra boosts. Right. In America, anyway. Uh-huh. Which isn't really applicable for Dickens. Right. No, but, but people say, I mean, people will talk about like, uh, like, uh, 
I mean, there's a, so something that I am fairly familiar with is like Day of the Dead in Mexico. And people say, some people want to say, well, Day of the Dead is just Mexican Halloween. And other people are like, no, it's not. It's not even like close. It's not even the same thing. And it's like, actually, it kind of is the same thing. It's based around this idea that uh, that is common among lots of different cultures that in the fall time, the the door opens between our world and the spirit world and spirits can go back and forth. And... And then there are all kinds of unique traditions that come up in different cultures based around that belief. So uh, trick-or-treating is based on that same belief, just like uh, building altars in Mexico. Uh, Day of the Dead altars is based on that same belief. So, And those are, those are old. Those are really old traditions, like way before the 1840s. Well, and, um, and American Halloween you know, does have a heavily Celtic right. um, pagan bent. Yeah, and so you can see how these things that were that used to be, I imagine, you know, oral traditions, and you know the kinds of things that families did turn into, or you know that your grandmother would talk about, turn into kind of a commercialized, codified holiday in the 1840s. Like I, I buy that completely, mm-hmm. and I think that that's kind of what happened with Christmas around the same time is that we had lots of traditions, um, some of them based on uh, Christianity, some of them based on uh, paganism, and some of them based on these uh, this hybrid. Yeah, it's uh, a weird that amalgamation becomes, of the two. Yeah, that's in danger of becoming kind of stamped out uh, by Puritans in the, in the 1840s. And then Dickens comes along and says, you know what, there's value. There's a lot of value in these traditions and writes a story and... Um, you know, according to some, almost single-handedly saves <laughs> saves Christmas with this, or story. at least the Christmas that we know today. Yeah, the Christmas yeah. that we know today, and it becomes kind of codified. And uh, so, so I'm thinking of some stories that blend kind of the macabre and then the Christmas. And I mean, the first one is Nightmare Before Christmas that comes to mind yes. for that. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, and that was on my mind as well. But then even I think of something like Harry Potter, which I think ABC Family airs that both around Halloween and around Christmas because mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it runs through kind of a vein that, that hits both of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's both because of the, the passage of the year, but they get highlighted really distinctly in those texts and in those films. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I don't know. I, I can't shake that question of what is it that we're missing I, I I don't know. I value these these traditions. I think that if they've lasted as long as they've ha- as they have, that there that there must be some reason for it. And when I see them go, uh, a part of me wonders um, what it is that we're what is it what is it that we're missing out on. And I think that Christmas would be. Uh, I think it would be emotionally deeper if we were to allow ourselves to to see death and to face the unknown on Christmas Eve. You know, so it's not a movie. In anticipation of Christmas day. It's not a movie. I have any interest in going to see, but it was an unexpected (laughs) hit over this last weekend when they did a Christmas horror film called Krampus about the evil version of Santa Claus (laughs) from folklore. Uh, and studio, it it like tripled studio expectations for how much money it was going to make. Um, I think that that says something. Yes, I agree. It's not one I plan to see, <laughs> but I think it does say something that it's um, doing this other element to this time of year, which maybe it fits because, you know, here in the Northern Hemisphere, like, it's, it is the darkest time of year. <laughs> like, uh-huh. There's just not much light, uh, you know, physically, and it's when 
we live in more comfort than any previous generation, but think about previous generations where it was just cold and dark all the time. And in the middle of it, we have this celebration of brightness and joy, but maybe it gets intermingled with some of the recognition that this is a hard time of year. Yeah. Is it, is it too much of a stretch? And maybe we'll just clip this bit, but, um, to, but probably not. Cause usually when somebody says that we don't, (laughs) um, to think that it, is associated with the Christian basis of Christmas, meaning Christ and and the connection to death. I don't know. It's because telling telling ghost stories, but that in, you know, like a, dark, an extension at the time of year seems seems to be like. But extending, you know, from uh, life to death to after death, right? But the. So the way our, our tradition of Christmas has developed, it's really about the birth of Christ and the tradition of Easter is about that death and renewal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, certainly we, we can be well aware that those dates don't line up with, <laughs> with when these things would happen. <laughs> but that's the way our traditions have developed. So I don't know that that, that connection resonates as much at Christmas time as it would around Easter time. But, but because I think it's spring, it we don't have any of it. <laughs> we don't, you know, we don't have the ghost stories in springtime. But but you you would think that it should, you know, I I don't know I I I don't have any problem with the way that our our holidays kind of stack up. And we were talking earlier about the the pseudo season that is the holiday season. <laughs> yes, the, <laughs> and the I like it. Fifth season, yeah. I like it a lot. <laughs> I like this idea that we have a holiday that um, recognizes death and gives us an opportunity to face death and scary things. And then, uh, and then we have a holiday in which we turn our hearts towards gratitude. And, and now that we've, now that we've seen and recognized the, the darkness, now we start to turn toward, uh, something more positive and, um, and we, you know, show thanks for kind of having come, having come through the darkness and coming out on the other side. And then Christmas is this, uh, celebration of light. And then really and, quickly, and this light you is hit such New an Year's. important part of Christmas. And then really quickly, you hit New Year's, and it's a complete reset, and you just kind of enter back into the calendar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I don't have a I don't have a problem with the way it's set up, and maybe you're right. Like maybe we maybe we've taken what used to happen in one night and spread it when we spread it over three months. The, what is the, I love the watching, Christmas creep. Is I love what they call it. Yes, but yeah. I love um, like Schultz. I, I've been working on a project with Schultz and peanuts and it's like in the fifties, he's addressing these issues that we treat as though like our generation is the first to notice that yeah. Christmas is happening sooner. <laughs> it's like in the fifties, he has an Easter comic strip about trying to go buy Easter eggs and there's already Christmas decorations up in the store. <laughs> yeah. But I think, and, and this gets us back to this, you know, the theme of this podcast, which is protagonists. And it is, we do kind of go through this hero's journey at the end of every year where we have a descent and then, and then a rise and, um, and, and, and a resurrection back into light. And, and I think that, I think that it's understandable that people get really frustrated when it's like, um, it's Halloween time and you're already at Christmas. It's like, no, we need (laughs) Halloween, you know? Yes. And we need, and we need Thanksgiving and we need Christmas, but they all need to have their, their time. It's like, you know, it would be it would be the the hero resurrecting before he's gone through the the descent, yeah. and it yeah I think it rubs I think it rubs people wrong, and it's easy to be like oh you know you're just a Scrooge because you don't like Christmas and it's like no 
I think that a lot of those people actually really do like Christmas, but it touches them on a, our, uh, like an archetypal level, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. in a, on a really deep level. Like, no, these things need to happen in a specific order and at a certain time of year. And it doesn't work when you do it out of sequence. So question, Todd, would this, would we feel the same if we were in the Southern hemisphere? I don't know. Because <laughs> so much of these is really about the season. Like, we're, we're linking these feelings and these emotions and these celebrations to the season. Mm-hmm. So the seasons were flipped. And uh, because global culture is spread so much uh, and everyone's kind of lined up the way we think about the calendar, I, I can't imagine how it would feel to have those holidays or, you know, versions of those holidays when the seasons weren't doing what they're doing here in the North. How'd you like to spend Christmas? On Christmas Island. That's what it would be. I don't, I don't know what you just did what? there, Todd. What? <laughs> that, Do we have the rights to sing that? <laughs> what was that? I've, I've never heard that. We're talking about having Christmas in I know, warm but, climates. But the, the song what, you just sang. What, what was that song? You don't know the song Christmas Island? No, uh-uh. Nope. Yeah, it's about it's about uh, spending Christmas on Christmas Island. Melikaliki Maka is another one, right? Yes, I, I know that, that one. one. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Please, I know Melikaliki Maka. <laughs> I know okay. it's a, a Christmas tradition in Australia to go surfing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I remember the first time when Hugh Jackman I'm... was becoming famous after, like, it was right before the, or around the first X-Men film. Mm-hmm. I saw him on a talk show and the story he told, because, you know, they always have to have their personal anecdotes, was about going camping on Christmas in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it's certainly got to be different. Yeah. I don't know. All right, Todd, any final thoughts about A Christmas Carol and Scrooge? I love this story, and I think that um, as I um, picked nits with uh, Big Bird and Elf about the about the message, actually, I really like the message of uh, of Sesame Street Christmas. I was not happy with Elf, <laughs> the way that Elf ended. Um, this for me is like this quintessential story with a great message. It's just so. Um, it's so heartwarming to see his change. And the other thing that stood out to me was Tiny Tim. And, um, and I know that, well, so a couple of, a couple of things happen simultaneously. Um, now this isn't too personal, but, uh, so my daughter who has special needs has been going through like a really, really rough patch. And, um, and that's hard. Like that weighs on you as a parent to see your child just really, really struggle. And so I've had her on my mind a lot. And then I, uh, I listen to the story today of tiny Tim and, um, and see his relationship with, with his father. And then to see the way that Scrooge's heart opens up and that tiny Tim is really, he plays a key role in that whole thing. Um, he's a really important catalyst in Scrooge's uh, transformation. And I think sometimes uh, undervalued for his contribution <laughs> to, to Scrooge's change. Uh, but then in these ghost stories that I was listening to um, afterwards on Lore... Uh, there was one about changelings and I don't know if you're familiar with the, the tradition of changelings. You've mentioned your fear on this podcast of, of changelings. Yeah. So the, I mean, the idea of a changeling is that, um, when people, 
when when a loved one would undergo a sudden change, uh, either a, like a physical change or especially an emotional or psychological change, um, then people would say that uh, fairies had come, or elves had come and replaced their loved one with a changeling, which is basically a bad copy of that person. And people would do really horrible, like unspeakable things to to change to what they thought were changelings to try to get their loved ones back. And it's uh, it's like chilling to hear about that kind of thing. But anyway, those so those three things all kind of came together. But but like my daughter in a different in a different era uh, could have been uh, labeled a changeling, and. Um, and anyway, it just it touched me like to to read this story and to see what a valuable um, contribution Tiny Tim has and uh, his his purity and the way that he's able to um, to help Scrooge. I don't know. It just uh, that it was it was totally unexpected, um, but uh, but important for me today. So anyway. All right, I had a one final thought that is much less personal. <laughs> um, and there's one line in this that just made me think that is such a description of the way so much of our communication happens today, particularly online. Uh-huh. And it is after Scrooge has... Um, it, so before his changes, when uh, his nephew has come, and then immediately after his nephew, there are these people asking for charity. And Scrooge just, you know, yells at them and says, aren't there poor houses? Aren't there prisons? Uh, uh, you know, people can go there. And finally the, the people asking for donations give up and leave. And the line is that Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself. Yes. <laughs> Which to me, that was just like, whoever yells the loudest and makes someone else give up, not that they convince anyone else, they feel better about themselves. That seems yes. to be so much of the problem of our communication today yeah. that people are yelling monologues at other people until someone stops responding on the thread online and they think they've won <laughs> when really they've convinced no one. And they go back to their uh, work their- feeling very proud of themselves. Yes. <laughs> an improved opinion of themselves. And I mean, clearly this is one of the fundamental flaws of Scrooge that is going to be changed through this. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's being criticized, but it, it's just, I think it's an issue with humanity that is still so pervasive today. Yeah. It's a beautifully, it's a beautifully written story. It's short enough that you can, I mean, I've heard of people who say like, I'm going to read Don Quixote every year, or I'm going to read all of the Lord of the Rings or every Christopher year. Christopher Lee like, said he read Lord of the Rings every single year. I don't understand how he did that. Yeah, I don't either, but this is totally doable. You can do a Christmas Carol every single year. And it's and basically watching a film is reading the book because most films um, most films follow the, the text very closely with a few exceptions. Do you have any favorite adaptations before we wrap up here? Uh, I really do like the Muppet, Muppet Christmas Carol. That's my favorite. So um, it's, it's really great. <laughs> I don't know if anyone is surprised that that's your favorite. Yeah. Uh, I, I after like the Patrick, Big Bird one, I think people are pretty much expecting that choice. I like Patrick Stewart. Yes. there's better, I've only seen that one once, but I loved it. I want to track it down and see it again. And I like the the Scott. The George yeah. Scott. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I think and I would throw in my Mickey's go-tos. Christmas Carol as well. Oh yes, Mickey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-uh. 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 <laughs> Our uh-uh. are saying no. That one is that it's it's creepy and weird and terrifying. Well, uh, that's the point. Yes. It's a ghost yes. story. No, you no, 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 no. Have except, you, except have that you, they have, have you not been listening to us? <laughs> except that they have creepy and weird and terrifying, all couched in 
Mickey, Donald and Goofy and Pete. <laughs> and he, and the Ghost of Christmas Future has a cigar and it's Pete and he drops you into a Pete, grave. Pete is never nice. I know, the but he doesn't drop you down a grave into hell. The, <laughs> the thing that's interesting to me is that when I read the when I read the story, I have this like hodgepodge of so I have like Fozzie Wig, <laughs> but Patrick I have Stewart. Mickey. I have Mickey as Bob Cratchit, and I have uh, Patrick Stewart as as a Scrooge. It's but he brings into the talk singing of Michael Caine in a <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's all it's very strange, but um, but totally delightful. And, and again, I would that list of adaptations had to be incomplete because this is never going to stop being adapted every year. I think there'll be new versions being done for TV or film. Okay, real yeah. quick, who like if you could pick one Scrooge, one Cratchit that you want to see on screen, not necessarily together. But you want to see this person be Scrooge and this person be Cratchit. I want Tom Hiddleston as Cratchit. Oh, I was his thinking face, about, I was his thinking face about, has that innocence to it. I was <sighs> thinking about Benedict Cumberbatch as Cratchit. Oh, okay. You know, I, 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 thought, I had that thought today. I thought of somebody and I thought, oh my gosh, they would be the best Scrooge ever. And now I cannot remember who it is. I can't think of the Scrooge. I think Ian, Ian McKellen would be a good Scrooge. Oh, yes. Yes, he would. You know, I, I think Morgan Freeman could do a really good Scrooge. Ooh, you know what? That's really that's a really good pick. And I think because we we'd be carrying so much of Morgan Freeman with him, it, we'd want to see him change so much. Like you can be so good. <laughs> <laughs> we know you can. <laughs> I like oh, that Morgan Freeman. Thinking like a, like a really bad Morgan Freeman at the beginning, like yeah. a really angry, rough, and angry with the deep voice. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know that I would want to see this, but I can imagine this. Is uh, Harrison Ford as Scrooge? Oh yeah, he's got a crotchety side to him. <laughs> Doesn't he like old old Harrison Ford? Yes, yeah, yeah. With his gravelly voice and his, you know, kind of I'm angry at the world thing. I'd oh. I'd like to see him change. <laughs> I just thought of something great. It would be like the opposite. It would be so. Here's here's the way that the film would go. It would start with Harrison Ford as Scrooge, and it would end with Morgan Freeman as Scrooge. <laughs> 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 no one would notice. Nobody would notice. Uh, an interesting thought. Um, Chris Pratt as as uh, Cratchit. Just that, like, boundless, optimistic cheerfulness. Wow. Despite being trod upon. See, all of these people are too big to be Bob Cratchit. Not Tom Hiddleston. Bob Cratchit needs to be, uh, um, what's his name? Morgan... What's his name? Can you give us a role that he's Bilbo, been? Bilbo Baggins. Mo- oh, Martin Freeman. Martin, Martin Freeman. Freeman, thank you. It's not yeah. Morgan Freeman, oh, it's that, Martin Freeman. That is a good Cratchit. He would yeah. be a great Bob Cratchit. With right. uh, Ian McKellen, it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think they've done something together. Yeah. Um, well, they know each other. It wouldn't be hard. <laughs> before we wrap up, can I offer two quick bits of self-promotion? Please. I was recently interviewed for a website called Secart. S E Q R Q U A R T. All right, I'm going to do that again. S E Q U A R T dot com. Uh, and we'll have a link in the show notes, but it was just about some of the other projects that I've had. And I did also just have a book release that I edited called The Ages of the Incredible Hulk. So, any listeners who have been interested in the things we've been saying, some of those academic side, more academic side of things, I've had a couple of things come out recently. If you like Todd Mack's philosopher theorist corner, you might like Joe Dorowski's books. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
That wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and please leave us a review. It helps more people to be able to find out about us. Links to things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. And that's also where you can find a list of all of our previous shows, which at this point, there's actually a year's worth of those previous shows. You can just suggest stories uh, or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. And we're all on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski and our producer, Andrew. Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. And that is where most of the discussion takes place. So please go there. If you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or just support us with a small financial donation, you can click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. So as you go through this seasoning, season, this seasoning, (laughs) 